first of all, I had to get clients to understand that the media is not necessarily out to get them unless they deserve it. Uh, you're just trying to get your side of the story. The press's job is to get both sides of the story out there. So there's going to be part of the story that's going to be against my client. But if we don't talk and give them some perspective, the whole story is going to be against them. Tell the truth. You're listening to Indiana civic leader and communications consultant Lou Gehrig. Lou talks about his life working on Capitol Hill in the White House and what brought him back to Indiana for the last three decades on this episode of Michael Loves Indy. Hi, friends. Welcome back to Michael Loves Indy. I really think you're going to enjoy this conversation with Lou Gehrig. Lou is president and partner of the firm Cease Gehrig and Associates here in Indianapolis. He's been a great influence on me personally and on many people in my generation and younger. A little bit about Lou. He uh, began his professional life as a middle school teacher. He hails from Elwood, Indiana, outside Anderson, Indiana. He became a local reporter in addition to being a teacher. He soon became press secretary to U.S. Senator Richard Luger from 1978 to 1981 before joining the White House staff working for press secretary Jim Brady during the Reagan administration. And he, uh, Lou, was working in the Reagan White House for Jim Brady when uh, Jim Brady and President Reagan were shot and both survived. And I had never asked Lou to kind of walk me through that extraordinary story of what it was like to work there at that time. Um, Lou returned to Indiana in 1982, serving as a lobbyist and head of the Public and Government Affairs Department for Merchants National Corporation, which is now PNC Bank. He founded his own firm, Cease Gehrig and Associates, and um, has since been a great you know, friend and influence on people like uh, former Governor, President Purdue, Mitch Daniels, and many others. Um, we talk about kind of a bygone era, and I'm not one of those people that thinks that everything's always getting worse, um, that everything was better in the past, but he, he, Lou was involved in national politics at a time when there was a lot more bipartisan cooperation, so we talk a little bit about that and maybe what it will take to get that back, but um, this was a great opportunity. I've known Lou for about 20 years and had never heard him tell some of these stories about his life and hear him reflect on... Um, what it's like been like to be back in Indianapolis for the last 30 years. So I hope you really enjoy this conversation with Lou Gehrig. Uh, Lou, thank you. Again. Thanks for stopping by the house. This is, this is actually the first interview I've conducted in this room in the, in the new house. Good, glad uh, I'm breaking it in. But um, I, I've, I've been looking forward to this for a while because in addition to being one of the most interesting people that I know and a lot of people know, um, I know a good amount about your life, but then I also know um, there, for me, there are some gaps. And um, I feel like one of the reasons I wanted to have a conversation is you're one of these people I feel like who has, there's a, there's a continuity, you know, between, um, of course, you grew up here, but, you know, Richard Luger and uh, Ronald Reagan and Mitch Daniels. And for, from the time I've known you, you've kind of have 
you know, you're very much of Indiana, but you've had a lot of DC experience and always just really interesting observations about, you know, community and country and things like that. So thanks for taking the time. You're welcome. I, I know that the story starts with, um, that's probably me. I'll hit that out. Um, got mine turned off too. the story, um, I think the story starts with, um, in Elwood, Indiana. Is that right? I was born in Anderson, but quickly moved to Elwood. And Elwood is a town right outside of Anderson. It is. And, it's, and it, when, when people, I mean, when people think of Elwood, they think of the Anderson area for sure, right? They do. Those of us from Elwood would never think that, but, but it's true. We are considered Madison. We are Madison County and we're close to Anderson. So, and, um, the uh, you know Anderson University, it's an, uh, an independent uh, Christian university right. that's there too. You think of a GM uh, right. had a really strong presence there growing up. So what was it? What was it like growing up in in Elwood outside of Anderson? Well, uh, a lot of people uh, were employed in Anderson at the uh, automobile plants, so we had a number of our people that were uh, friends and their their dads and moms. Uh, got in cars, they'd travel four people in a car and they would drive over and go to Anderson and come home. And, and so that was a source of uh, employment for a number of people from Elwood. And uh, um, I'm trying to think the wigwam, that's one of the, co- one of the country's biggest yes. um, capacity high school uh, gyms. Is that right? The, high school basketball gyms. It's one of them. And, but ironically, I think like 11 of the, Largest 16 are in Indiana. That's right. Newcastle and places like that. That's true. Yeah. 11 largest, largest the largest gyms. The Wigwam was, uh, I mean, I was there when they had the old gym. And uh, and then they built the new Wigwam, which was the place to, to play bass, see basketball. Because I, I think growing up, growing up in Illinois, but being here for the last 20 years, so if you say, when you say Anderson, Indiana, I think GM, I think uh, basketball. I also think of um, not too far down the road, um, the Gaithers and the Bill and Gloria Gaither. Mm-hmm. And, I, and as you know, I've gotten to know Bill a little bit through you and Jim Morris. Um, was, was that, were, were they national at that time? They became national in the 70s and 80s. Ironically, I was with them on Monday. We took a small group of us to go up and meet. Uh, we took uh, Kara Herring, who is a new. Uh, uh, inclusive officer for the governor, dynamic person. And uh, she was sitting at our desk. We're helping to do a couple of things. And she was sitting in our office and somehow it came up, you know, music. And she just said, I love Christian music and I love the Gaithers. And somebody around the table from one of my employees says, well, there's somebody at this table that knows him very well. And so when they told her about my relationship with Bill and Gloria, we went up and spent, we thought it'd be an hour and a half, and it was close to three hours. Wow! I I I told I got to tell Bill this is only a few weeks ago at the Pacer game that learning a lot of his songs on piano when I was learning piano because I have an uncle who's a choir director who was really passionate about the Gaither's music, and that was a, a constant. Um, so, where do you think? I mean, I know that in your career you've done a lot of different things. You know, you're a reporter at a young age, but and then you you've always been passionate about public service. Um, if we were to look back at you, you know, as a young kid, where, where would we see some of the kind of the seeds being planted in terms of what did it come from your parents? Did it come from other influences? It, it came from my parents. My dad was very involved in the community and giving back to the community. 
he was a used car salesman. And he started out when, when I first knew him, when I was first born. And then uh, he got into real estate and sold farms, but he always very active in, in the community. Qantas Club, very active. And uh, he, always, he always had a love for supporting. Uh, there were a couple of people in our community, uh, boys, uh, who were, uh, did not have good child, did not have good childhood homes. And uh, he was always finding work for, for them to do and paying them money. And so they really depended on him as kind of being someone they looked up to to teach them leadership skills. He was probably their only father. So I watched that from afar, and I thought, you know, he's, he's giving back to the community. And he always said that uh, he did it without fanfare, didn't seek any recognition. So uh, that was, uh, and I had some teachers, uh, Martha Parker, who was uh, taught me a love of history and politics. And um, so I got to know her. Uh, you know, she was very important in my life, too. So did you, um, were you interested in athletics as well? Did you get to play sports? Well, I was interested in athletics, but uh, unfortunately, I didn't have the qualities to be. Uh, I mean, I could, in basketball, I could score 20 points a game. But the guy that I had to guard was going to score 40 points. So there was, you know, even then the coaches says, well, we, we need to make a change. So I played golf. Yeah. Played golf. And uh, I loved golf. Played it for four years in high school and on the team. And and still play golf. and Still love it. But uh, And, and uh, did you grow up in the – well, let me back up. Anderson University is the Church of God denomination, right? right. Did you grow up Church of God as well? I did. Yes. My family, my family, my grandfather – was uh, had a farm up in uh, DeKalb County, and uh, it uh, ended up they sold it for uh, to the ch- local church, and they so yes, our family goes back several generations of Church of God. One question occurs to me that in nearly twenty years of knowing you, I've never I've never asked you, and that is, so your name is memorable for anyone who's a baseball fan. Right, you know, you spell it old. Your G E R I G is right. the the great Lou Gehrig baseball player. G E H R I G is that That's right? Correct. Yes. Is there is there a, a connection there? No, I was supposed to be Louise, but as soon as I was born, they saw that that wasn't going to work. So I became Louis E Gehrig. And yes, it's interesting that that uh, you you can tell the generations of people uh, for years uh, people knew Lou Gehrig as the baseball player. Then a younger group of people came along and knew Lou Gehrig as Lou Gehrig's disease. And now if you look, because of the movie, the old movie classics, you know, the Yankee, the, uh, the story about Lou Gehrig is on. So it's a mix. People know both about his uh, being a first baseman and also also the disease. When, when, you, were, when you were a kid, that, that kind of, you know, you know, memorable name. Did you kind of embrace it or was there a time where you thought, ah, I wish I'd. Well, uh, I, uh, I did, uh, the older I've gotten, I've embraced it more because, uh, no one forgets the name. Right. And, uh, so when I was young, I did a lot of study about him and he was, he was, he was a baseball player that, uh, always showed up for work. And I, and I tell young people, I said, you know, here's a guy that did not miss a day of work for 14 years. And I said, people will pay you well if you just show up to work. Yeah. And, uh, and he was a humble guy too. He wasn't, uh, uh, but yeah, I, I've, uh, I've had a lot of fun with the name. I mean, when I worked for president Reagan, the, the Friday 
before the assassination attempt in March, he brought all of the Hall of Famers, baseball Hall of Famers in. I mean, there was Stan Musial, there was Joe DiMaggio, there was Ted Williams. Uh, you know, they were all there. It was the largest gathering of the Hall of Famers, former, well, Hall of Famers. And so Jim Brady, my boss, asked me to host a table. And, I mean, it was a hoot to, you know. Um, I bet. They introduced me. I won't say who the player was. But one of the guys, Don Newcomb, who I'd known in, a little bit in a previous life, introduced me to this guy. And the guy looked at me and he says, you know, your dad was a hell of a ball player. And I <laughs> said, thank great. you very much. That's great. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> And I, I I know there are a million stories from that Reagan era, and I promise I'm, I'm going to ask you to tell some of them. Um, what, did you did you kind of know um, you know when you were a um, junior high high school that the plan is Anderson University and I want to be a journalist? No, I I really started out being a teacher because of my love for Mrs. Parker and and uh, and and education. So I taught. Uh, my wife and I taught. And we found two teaching salaries and two mouths to feed. That's not bad. Yeah. Did you meet your wife at uh, in college? Anderson. Is yes. that right? We we were. I met her there within. My last words of my mother as I got out the car before I went to college was, "Don't fall in love too soon." So I waited three weeks, <laughs> and my wife was a year ahead of me in school, although we're close to age. And so uh, so anyway, yes. Then then when we had our first child, then. Um, I saw that three mouths to feed on one teaching salary wasn't going to swing it. So I went and got a second job and started working for a newspaper. Really, I wasn't, you know, I knew I wasn't a, uh, English was not my strongest strongest language, but I knew what made a great story. Yeah. And human interest, talk about the, and I knew as I covered sports and I knew if I threw every kid's name in the story, I'd have lots of people saying great things about me. And yeah. I'd keep my job. But I learned, I learned how to work with the media, and that's, uh, yeah, that's really. So there's a time. So you're hustling. You're teaching school during the day, then a beat reporter at night for. Right. So, wow. Covering all the sports. Okay. Yeah, all of them. That's what, yeah, because I actually, ever since I've known you, I would describe you. You're kind of a fan of every sport. Mm-hmm. You really follow about every sport. Basketball, football, baseball. Those were the sports there. Yeah. You know, I like I like all sports. You mentioned golf. Did you pick up some auto racing too, being from well, Anderson? Uh, I I picked it up from Elwood because my dad walked worked for General Motors, so we used to come to the five hundred. Of course, you know, kids kids in Central Indiana. I mean, we all came to the five hundred at some point yeah. in our career. So it is. I mean, obviously, my kids are growing up in a different era, but it's it's funny. It's so I have you know two boys and a girl, and um. Not not their favorite sports and the ones they know the most about are basketball and auto racing. Right, and then that's not, not my, their mom and I. You know, didn't push it. It's just like you're around it even today. Right. You're around it so much. Well, it's the the auto racing in, in Indianapolis. I mean, what Roger Penske has done, and Mark Miles, and and, and Allison have done. Uh, Melangdon have just been phenomenal. Yeah, just phenomenal. They breathed a lot of life into that. They place. have. Yeah, and uh, so we're yeah. I, we we're very lucky that we have. Yeah, people like that. So, how in the world do you go from teaching school and then being a beat reporter to Richard Luger? Well, there was a jump in between. I came to Indiana Central College, then into Indiana Central, to work for Dr. Gene Cease, who became 
president of Indiana Central when he was 38 years old. Which became University of Indianapolis. Yes, right? and he yeah. secured the names with there's some controversy behind that, but uh, because a lot of people thought that IUPUI would become University of Indianapolis or Indianapolis, Indianapolis University. And, um, but he, uh, he secured the names without anybody knowing how he did it, what he did. And, of course, he has reminded people, he said, you know, most institutions named after a city are private schools and not public schools. So, uh, but I worked for him, and immediately he said, uh, I have a relationship with the mayor, Mayor Luger, and I want you to get to know the people down there because we do a lot of work for them. So I, I uh, got involved, and I was involved in the 74 campaign. And, uh, and then in 76, uh, uh, Mitch Daniels was helping the, senator, the mayor, and, and Dr. Cease, and that's where he came to. He could have worked anywhere for any company, never showed up and made a lot of money. And he ended up coming to Indiana Central, taught two classes, and uh, headed a program and was there every day. And so uh, once a week, I would advance him. I would take him out. I'd plan his day, and we would travel the state of Indiana. We had like seven or eight advanced guys. We all took a day. Dr. Cease was very generous to give me that time off, and so that's how I got to know Senator Luger, Mayor Luger, Senator Luger, and Mitch Daniels. And then, so, uh, so, and so Luger was the young mayor of Indianapolis, and you and Mitch were kids, basically, at the time. Well, and, I would have been 20, you know, I was probably 27 or 28, and Mitch was 24. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And did, was there, the, this, this is what's crazy, because my first familiarity with um, Richard Luger was growing up in, you know, central southern Illinois, and my dad would point out on McNeil Lair every time Luger was on, which was pretty often. Just right. But, so I, I, I can only... I, my my view of Luger started as Luger Nunn, you know the the right. um, the most respected voice on U.S. foreign policy. Um, what was what like? Did you have did you have any? Was there anything that that could have predicted that this you know young mayor of Indianapolis and you're you're very young working for him that that would be in his future? Well, I think those of us that worked for him felt. Um, that there would be something on the horizon for him that he was just, uh, he was not done. He was such, he was such a good thinker. And I mean, people, uh, uh, you go back to when I was there and we had the New York city bailout bill. And most of the people wanted to let New York just declare bankruptcy. But Senator Luger knew that that shouldn't happen and couldn't happen. And he was the one that structured the deal that the, the money, if, if, if the city of New York took the federal money and couldn't pay it, then the loan guarantees would be paid for by the union pension funds. So everybody had some skin in the game. The unions did, the city of New York, and also the federal government. And that was a brilliant stroke. It would have never... You know, there were people that couldn't figure that out, and except he was. And he was a Republican. So wow. what Republican's going to bail out New York City? Yeah. None of that back then. This, this um, reminds me, one of, one of my gaps in the timeline. So he won the, 
uh, he was elected U.S. Senate seventy six. Is that right? Right. Was it was it always assumed that you would be going to Washington? No. Then it wasn't. Okay. No, it wasn't, and um, it was not assumed. And I mean, I, I didn't work to do that. I, um, but I did have the opportunity to go, and it would have been just to serve on the press staff. And I went to Doctor Cease and. Uh, sat down with him because he'd been very good to me. I mean, I'd taken off a day a week to travel with a senator, my vacation time. And I talked to him, and he said, you know, he said, you need to let him get out there and spend a few months. Uh, let him kind of have a shakedown cruise. And um, so I, I walked away thinking, okay, is Dr. Cease thinking about him and the university? Or is he think giving me the best advice? And it didn't take me long to realize that he was giving me the best advice. I mean, I would never question Gene Cease because he was uh, he he'd really had taken me under his wing early on. And so, um, within six months, they had an issue with, uh, and the press secretary job opened up. So instead of being just a press person, I went to be the yeah. press secretary. That's a hard, you know. It's like. I, I've never been in a situation quite like that, but as a young, ambitious person, that mu- that I, I can see how that would be hard. You know what I mean? I'm thinking myself in that yeah. same situation. I would want to say, "Senator, Senator, yeah, hey, well, you know, was, remember me?" Yeah. But I think that was the importance of mentors in giving you good advice. Yeah. That's that's good for you because you and I have been around enough campaigns. You know that when someone's elected, you have all these people that come together and work. And after a while, running an office is different than a campaign. 100%. Campaigns run and shoot, you you know, answer the phone and put out the fire. And then when you become the mayor or the senator, it's, okay, you've got to answer the phone, take care of the needs of the people that you're trying to take care of. And in the mayor's office, it's fix the potholes, collect the garbage, and, and make sure that crime is a... Uh, you you know people feel safe and so people that run campaigns sometimes can't switch over to that so was that um what was the conversation like at home when you were given this opportunity well it was my wife was said you know the kids were five and six and she said this will be a great opportunity great so so you moved out um did you live in dc proper did you live in no i lived i lived the first place that i could afford indoor to, uh, indoor pot uh, plumbing that was 22 miles out okay near a dulles airport yeah uh herndon or uh uh well it was chantilly chantilly yeah right right um and uh memories memories of kind of the first kind of the you know baptism by fire uh working on capitol hill are there are there um events that stand out in as you uh well um i think the first thing that that, that that when you walk into a senator's or a congressman's office, they have a clock and they have little around outside of the clock, they have lights, little lights. And what you don't realize is those lights determine your life, that determine the life of the senator or congressman because they tell you when there's a vote, they tell you how many minutes you have until the vote is going to be over. And so, and the votes can come anytime during the day, sometimes at night. And, uh, but probably the, the one that was, uh, the first time that we really had baptism by fire was when president Carter 
was in, and they had the failed attempt to try to get the uh, uh, people from uh, Iraq out of uh, Iran. Iran, yeah. Iran out of, uh, you know, to, to go over there and take them and, you know, crash and our equipment's, you know, just. So that was like at 530 in the morning, and we were downtown because Senator Luger was, uh, because of his interest in foreign relations and his expertise, was called on early and often by a lot of people. So, did um, and I, did he have uh, uh, committee assignments at the time that allowed him to? For, he was foreign relations okay. and intelligence. Okay, okay. So immediately, and I'm 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 imagining that I'm imagining that he uh, would have sought out those. He committee did. Assignments he he did not go on foreign relations right away. Uh, he did go on, on intelligence. Uh, he was on the ag committee. That was always near and dear yep. to his heart. Ag committee because of the importance of ag and. Indiana, I think, you know, and then later when Mitch became governor and he made ag a major department, I mean, you know, and uh, I think it had to go back to part of that was to see when Mitch realized how important ag was to the, not to the federal government and what that meant to our country. And I think when he got here as governor, he, he, I, he's never said that, but you learn so much about ag with him being on the committee. So I think that played into Mitch making a high priority in his uh, leadership, his governorship. I'm I'm told you you've told me stories about him, but I'm when I picture Luger's um, kind of demeanor and management style, I'm picturing someone who is pretty calm under pressure. And then he yes. also he picked up running. He became a, a kind of a fitness junkie, right? He did. He uh, he when he was a mayor, he did running every once in a while, and then. Uh, when he uh, he got to Washington, he started running on a regular basis, and uh, and then we all did. We had a chart on the wall, and each week we put down how many miles we did, and then we'd have it for the quarter and for the year. And every night, we all, any of us, there might be 10, 12 of us that uh, we'd uh, we'd get dressed and go down and walk out to the tree right by the Dirksen building and stretch. And then we'd take off and run down the mall and we'd run, you know, three miles, three and a half miles, come up the other side of the house and finish right in front of the Capitol. The national mall is just like perfect for oh, a long run. I mean, it's, it is. it's surreal. Yeah, yeah. I can, I can totally picture that. Um, were there, uh, uh, experiences either with, you know, things the Senator got involved in or, or thing, you know, you mentioned the, um, the failed attempt to free the hostages and that tragedy in the late seventies. But were there other events that gave you some clue that sort of um, Reagan was going to have support and there was going to be um, a change? Well, we, we all knew that, that, that Carter was, was going to have problems because you had the high interest rate and you had uh, what happened in Iran. And so, and there was just a malaise as, you know, Carter said it himself, and that again, and, and President Reagan brought up the fact that you know, are you happier now than you were four years ago? Are you better off? And the answer was just off the chart, no. So uh, you know, we watched uh, we watched President Reagan, and we watched the people around him, and and uh, so we, uh, of course, the one person. That was on one of the. It was on the inside of the Reagan uh, uh, group was L. Keith Bulin. 
who was kind of the godfather to Mitch and the godfather to anybody that ran. I mean, he was the one that set up the 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 apparatus for Dick Luger to run for mayor. And uh, he became the kingpin of the Republican politics. So he was on the inside with Reagan. I mean, he was one of the few people that went with Reagan in 1976 against President Ford, and they almost pulled it off. So we had that, you know, dynamic uh, kind of a direct link into the Reagan uh, um, candidacy. So, Did you have a lot of uh, time and exposure with uh, Keith Bulin when you were – well, we did. Of course, yeah. Mitch was very close to him, yeah. and uh, uh, we all knew who he was, and he and you know. But again, when in in when they were uh, looking for vice presidents, um, candidates, uh, there was a story in the Washington Times. I think it was written by a UPI writer, and he went through all of the list of people that being considered for presidency. But his last paragraph said, but the dark horse is a senator from Indiana by the name of Richard Luger. Now, somebody had to plant that story from, from and usually you do that to see, throw them out there, the balloons go up and see who shoots them down. And that was the first time that we had ever heard of that possibility. And then all of a sudden, my life did change to the extent of the reporters I'm dealing with were national. So, uh, we uh, we went to Detroit and uh, um, you know we got down to the one of the finals and then the, the co-presidency idea between Ford and Reagan came about and that was that was the strangest thing I ever seen but it was just like watching a brush fire burn just burned quickly yeah. and uh, so he had to go with that's when he went with George Bush but uh, yeah it was. It was quite a quite a thing. I mean, there were like twenty two candidates, and I'm not usually a guy that leaks to the press, but there were there were these papers called the Eagleton papers, in which if you were being considered for the vice presidency, you had to fill out these papers that asked you everything about your life, including the last question is, is there anything we should know that you haven't told us? And it goes back to Senator Eagleton of Missouri, who had had some uh, was on a vice president on a ticket. And he had had some instances of, of mental mental health issues in which he had see, he had sought some psychiatric uh, help, and uh, and so he had some shock treatment, and that came out, and that submarined his candidacy, and he had to leave the ticket. Uh, so so one night we get the call, Mitch gets the call one Friday night from the the, the campaign, the Reagan campaign, and they said. Uh, We'd like you to come up and pick the papers and fill them out. Now, there were 22 names on the list. And I thought, we're going to clear the field real fast. And so I called Phil Jones, who was with CBS News, who was from Fairmount, Indiana. Uh, Home of James Dean, right? And and the, uh, the guy that created Garfield the Cat. Oh, wow. So you had James Dean, you know, uh, Jim Davis, and then the third one, the third guy on there was Phil Jones, and I used to always kid him. I said, "Not many people get second billing to a cat." So, uh, but I called him and I said, "Hey, you need to know we got we, we got the Eagleton paper call." So what he did is he had his one of his researchers go through all twenty two people and say, "Have you been?" And out of the twenty two, there were only five or six. Now, 
So now we're not one of 22, we're one of five or six. Now, they had to quickly pass out all 22 because people were upset. So, But anyway, for we were one of five, one of six. And so then we went to Detroit and fascinating, fascinating. But uh, anyway, that's, yeah. Um, and, then, and so I'm, I'm thinking then, um, then, so from Luger's office, you got hired by President Reagan. I bet. And I, and I know I might be I might be missing a step, but no, uh, that's it. No, I went from I did not want to leave Luger. I'd been with him for three years. I loved working for him, but I got to know uh, the press secretary Jim Brady, who was press secretary to Senator Roth of Delaware, and he said uh, he and I become close personal friends. A lot of stories on a couple of things that we did with him and Luger and, and Roth, but um, he was very unique in the way he handled a press conference up until then. Most press conferences were always held in this dusty old room up at the Capitol with fake books, looked like a fake book library. And he was the first one that really took, if we were going to talk about energy, he'd say, let's go to the, uh, let's go to a gas station and talk about energy costs. If we're talking about food, let's go to the grocery store. So he was really the, took the media to the on-site. So we got to become good friends. And uh, after the election, you know, uh, I get a call from a guy by the name of Dennis Thomas, and Dennis was a dear friend of Jim's. In fact, he, he had worked. He was a chief of staff for, he was on the chief of staff for uh, Senator Roth, and he just says, you know, Jim doesn't want to call you because he don't want to leave a note that Jim Brady called, but he says he wants to talk to you. So I went down, and I saw him. He says, I'd like you to, he says, I need, I need people around here I trust. So I... I talked about it, talked about it with my wife. I talked with Dr. Cease, and finally I, I sat down with Senator and Mitch, and I said, I've, had, I've got this opportunity. I'm not anxious to leave. But, but they recognize that, you, you know, I could be of help to them down there. So I went to work with, uh, you know, with the president and Jim Brady about three weeks after they were sworn in. So I'm trying to think, if I'm doing the math, you're – your time working for Reagan and Jim Brady, not not much time passed before the shooting. That's right. I was hired on February 1st, and the shooting was March 30th. Jeez. Yeah. Um, can you can you share kind of what was happening that day? And how you- well, the irony of it was is that Bill Gaither uh, was going to have a concert at Constitution Hall that night, Bill and Gloria. And so – Whenever there was an event in D.C., I would take the bus down, and I'd drive to Arlington, and I'd get off there, and Jim Brady would pick me up like at 6.30 in the morning. So I did that whenever she was coming in town. So she was coming to town that night. So on that day, we go into uh, Jim and I. We always had a meeting like at 6.30 in the morning in the kitchen. So he must have picked me up around 6. So, uh, or in the uh, dining room. And... Um, we went down, and on that day we had, uh, uh, in fact, uh, Brady was going to have his last press briefing. It usually had happened at noon. And I invited Mark Lubbers to come to the press briefing because on the Saturday before we'd been in, Mitch and I and, and uh, Mark had all been in Philadelphia for the NCAA tournament. IU was in the tournament. And so I couldn't go back on Monday. And But I said, Mark, I said, why don't you come over for – uh, a press briefing for so he came over and stood in the back of the room after it was over we uh 
I introduced Mark to Jim, and uh, Jim was sitting around and said, well, who's going to go with the president to his speech? I would never travel with a president inside Washington. I traveled with him on the press plane whenever he would go to other places. Like He came to Notre Dame in May. That was the first trip he made after the shooting was to give the commencement speech at Notre Dame in May. And so I, I would travel with a press plane. So I, um, I went back to my office and uh, Bill and Gloria and their families came in. And so I called over to the president's uh, secretary and I said, uh, you know, uh, when's the president expected back? And she said, well, not until close to two o'clock. And it was, I think it was one or one, a little after one. And uh, I told her who Bill and Gloria Gaither She said, oh, no, you don't need to explain. I know who they are. I said, well, is there any chance my assistant can bring them over just to see the West Wing and come by? She said, yeah, bring them by my office. And so they were on their way over there, and that's when the shooting happened. And they tell the story about how they were escorted out quickly. And that's, you know, we were we, we didn't go to the concert last that night, and we were getting ready to, I mean, uh, Rawhide Down is a book about, that shooting day and it's pretty accurate in what uh, what happened so i was there for another another day and a half trying to clear the media in that all wanted to come to the press conference just con just constant constant i'm just man, man, just i'm picturing yes. just constant you know national and international press so in a in a um i mean imagine and not a big not a big communications team too so you're no. just divide and conquer and we didn't have social media so right I had my staff, but uh, two of us stayed there all night uh, taking phone calls from people that wanted to come because you had to clear them. You just can't call and say, hey, I want to come in. you got to ask a series of questions to make sure they are who they say they are. And, and so, uh, yeah, so we spent that. So is that, a, is that a thing where I'm imagining in your situation, you're a young staffer, it's like, are you – are you game planning? Well, what if what if the president's been killed, or what if what if? Uh, oh yes. uh, Brady Brady's been killed, or is that? We uh, thought at one point they announced that Brady had died. We all thought he had, uh, but uh, but we didn't know about the shooting. We didn't know the president was injured until later. We didn't know that he had taken a bullet. So, uh, but you're already you know you're talking about what ifs, and uh, you know interesting thing somebody said. You know, Lou, you better write down what's happening. You better keep a journal. Well, you didn't have enough time to keep a journal. I said, oh, I'll remember. But if you took 10 things that happened on that day with the president shooting, once he was shot, and then say, okay, Lou, which happened? What was the second, third, or fourth? 24 hours later, I couldn't tell you. I had no clue. I couldn't tell if two was six or six was two or uh, so uh, is it just cause you, you, you've just at that point shifted into, yes. okay. Yeah. Cri- right. Crisis. Right. Got to Right. Yeah. The, the ship is sinking and got to the irony of it was, is at four o'clock in the afternoon, we were to meet with the secret service about what do we do when we're in the midst of a crisis? Wow. So never got to that meeting. We were living it. So, um, uh, George HW Bush stepped in, in that, right. in, in those moments. Is right. that right? Well, he was flying back, and uh, he was he was uh, one of the things that he they wanted him to land at come straight to the White House and land it and be in a helicopter and come in, and he wouldn't do it. He said, "I will not do that. That's for the president, not the vice president." So it was uh, uh, you know everybody that worked for the president 
that point was fairly professional because they all realized that we had a job to do and we had to do it for the country. But there were some hiccups. I mean, you know, we had the Al Haig incident where he's yep. downstairs. and I'm in, I'm in charge now. Yeah, yeah right. and I still remember we get, we, we're getting off the podium and Larry Speaks was, and we were going off. And all of a sudden, here comes uh, General Haig and just in a sweat. And he said, I got to go there and talk. I got to go there and talk. He, he goes in and, and speaks. And I thought at that time, I said, this is going to be the end of his career. He's not, he can't do that and, uh, and, and not, not be in trouble with him. And, and the people down in the Situation Room uh, were sitting there, and they looked up, and they said, well, there's, a, there's Al on TV. He says, you know, that must be an old tape of somewhere. And somebody said, no, that's what he had on. They looked around. He's not there. He says, he's up there live. And nobody knew it. He just took it on his own. Was that just an impulsive move by yes. him just to try to? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Man. Um. Well, and then it, what? What were what were those intervening months like? Just as you kind of the, waiting for the dust to settle, the president's recovery, and finding out well, is, is Brady going to make it? We knew we knew that, that that in a short period of time Brady was going to make it, but not not a short period of time. It took a while. But um, you had you had the battling of the press people, and um, between Larry Speaks and David Gergen. And uh, uh, and I was still able to do part of my job. I was I, I would bring in. Uh, we were a guy by the name of Max Friedersdorf, who was from Indiana, uh, and was in charge of legislative affairs. And so what he would do, he would come over to me and say, "Lou, we're going to have a vote on the t- most of it was on tax issues." He said, "We're going to have a vote next week, a couple of weeks out, and I need you to." Uh, we need to bring in somebody from the Indiana Fifth District. We need Georgia Third District because we need. And what what he was saying is, I'd bring in the media, so I'd bring in the media, and we'd have an entire day to spend with them in uh, Washington. Had access to any cabinet secretary I wanted, which was kind of scary. That uh, I could call up, you know, some kid thirty five years old and say, "I'd like to have the chief. I'd like to have the Secretary of State come over here for this day." So we did that, and we always ended up the day with uh, the president and vice president at a cocktail hour or a breakfast or a lunch. So uh, uh, I did that, and then at one point, the uh, they were trying to get a uh, some people passed through Senate confirmation, and uh, they asked me if I'd go over there and help get him through and, and meet with senators, and so we did. I did that, and then after that, it was. Uh, you know, I spent a couple of months doing that. Uh, and But after that, I, my wife and I, the kids were getting ready for junior high, and we really wanted to come back. I mean, Senator Luger had always told us, he said, you know, your job is to come out here, spend work hard for a few years, but then to go back home. Yeah. He said, you can make, he said, you can make a lot of money in Washington, D.C., but not make a difference. Or you can go home to Indianapolis and Indiana, you won't make as much money, but you'll make a difference. Absolutely. One question that comes to mind before we go to that part about just about Reagan. So it's like, you know, I I mean, he's probably the first. I remember a little bit of Jimmy Carter growing up. Reagan's really the one, you know, that I remember in very well in like grade school and junior high years. And I think, I think my view of him changes over time. Not to get into anything. My dad was a huge Reagan fan. There's a there's right. a photo I think I've shown you of my late father standing next to Reagan. Right. My dad was a small town attorney, but but got to meet him. Um, 
And uh, I think about um, Reagan's gift for communicating complex issues with a lot of simplicity and then with a personal, you know, you felt like, you felt like right. he was, he was invested, you know, you felt like he was, you were getting the real authentic, you know, um, Ronald Reagan. And so what, what was it like staffing him? Well, first time I met him, uh, it was on a Wednesday afternoon. I just, I think I'd been on the job a day or two and, and, uh, Jim Brady took me over to meet him and he said, you know, Mr. President, I'd like to meet my newest staff member in the press office, Lou Gehrig. Without skipping a beat, the president said, well, didn't I play you in a movie? I said, no. I said, you would have done a great job. So there, there's another case where the name, so whenever we would be in a group of 100 or 50 people, and he'd always come over to me, and so did Vice President Bush, then Vice President Bush, because his favorite player was Lou Gehrig. They both played baseball. They both played first base. Uh, both were left-handed, and so uh, he always, you know, that always was an advantage because President Reagan would sometimes just seek me out, and he says, how's our ball team doing, you know? So, uh, but he was the real deal. I mean, people asked me, what was he like off stage? I said he was the same off stage as he was on. But you're right. There, there seemed to be uh, that the people that prepare papers feel like, the big, the the more pages they send in, the more important they are. And he said, "I want to cut it down to a page, page and a half." And and some of those people about choked because they couldn't do it. And but that taught all of us that complex issues can be uh, can be simplified to the extent where you can you can solve them. Yeah. And just especially just in a more complex world, just like less is more. So there, right. you know, you know, uh, Dave Lewis, formerly of Lilly, he'll right. he'll, he'll um, he's got this exercise where he'll say, okay, boil the word, boil the idea down to ten words or less. Now see if you can do it in five words or less. And it just seems like as a as a um, as a mental exercise, it's really it's really good. It seems like Reagan had a real well. Real it talent. was it was like uh, you know again, Doctor C said that anybody can make a twenty to twenty five minute speech but not very many people can make a 10 minute speech because it it takes work. It does. It takes work. Yeah. So, um, you're, you're, you, you know, the advice that you were given about, you go back to, back to Indianapolis and you can really, really make a difference. Um, again, so at that point you've been out in DC for several years. Is that a hard conversation at home or did it feel like the right time? Well, it did because of education, but my wife loved Virginia. It's beautiful state, just beautiful. And all the things that you could do. There at no cost. It was just uh, wonderful. The downtown, the museums, the zoo, um, you know, it just was uh, a wonderful place to be. But she knew it was time to come home for the kids because I hadn't been around for five and a half years. I mean, I usually left before they were up, and I got home after they were back in bed. So I saw them on weekends. And when I worked in the White House, I'd take them down to the White House because I'd worked on Saturdays. So, um, but uh, yeah, so it was it was time to come home. Was the plan to come back and start your own firm? The plan was to come back and um, and do some do uh, something first, and then do something with Doctor Cease and, and my partner David, his son. Okay. So we came back to Merchants Bank, ban- uh, you know, the Bank of the Frogs, and worked with uh, Nick Frenzel and Don Tanzel. And all of those people, and um, 
I didn't know anything about banking, but we, we were trying to pass this statewide banking law, cross-county banking law, which is quite significant. Uh, it was great to be, I mean, they were both, all banks were very active in the community. And uh, it, was, it was an exciting time to be in the banking business. But uh, and I worked on the media side, did some political, we did, I was our lobbyist and did some political stuff. So it was, yeah, it was fun. Uh, it was a fun five years, but we were looking forward, Dr. Season and David and I were looking forward to buying. We didn't know what, what it was going to be, but ended up being a public relations firm. Tell, tell me, um, when, when you, you, you come back to Indianapolis, what were some of the, it's a basic question, but I'm just so interested. So working the D.C. and national press on a day-to-day basis in the White House versus working for uh, Merchants, Mer- right. Merchants Bank, and... Now PNC. Now PNC, yeah, that's right. right. And it was National City. And right. But um, versus working more local, regional press, what, what, what are some of the immediate... Just, I'm, I'm trying to put myself in kind of your day-to-day. What, what, what were some of the immediate well, obvious differences? Th- up until that point, the, the media really had not covered business. I think the star had one page and the news maybe had one page for business. But at that point, they were starting to cover business more and more. And so the staffs were being added to each paper. So in television was too. I think they saw that covering business was smart. The IBJ was, you know, doing their thing and, and I think put pressure on the rest of them to, to try to keep up because they were getting good stories. So, uh, but it was, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I enjoyed working with the Indianapolis media. I always made sure that whenever we had an event in, uh, with the president or vice president in D.C., I always invited somebody from the Indianapolis media market, whether they were on the sheet or not, whether they were on, if, whether that was what the, you know, among all the people that President Reagan's people want me to bring in. I always invited somebody from Indianapolis because I figured, one, I wanted them to enjoy that, and two, wouldn't hurt that when I went back, they might still take my phone call yeah. knowing that I had brought him to Washington to be with the yeah. president. And what are, I guess this this might be tricks of the trade, I don't know, but it's like one of the things that you help clients do, and, and I've, you know, um, I've, I've seen you do this in, in many different environments, is you know, when the, maybe the client and it might be, you know, might be an elected official or whatever the case may be, you almost try to help, help calm the person in a crisis situation and then help them see the issue through the eyes of media. Um, you know, where, where did, where'd you kind of pick that up? Cause I know part of you is like a psychologist, you know, and that's part of the, that's part of the work that you do. Well, it may have gone back to when I worked at the Monticello Herald Journal and somebody would come in and try to convince me to write a story about an issue that, that they were they were concerned about. And I learned from that. I learned what way worked with me, what in, would what how they approached me was important, and how truthful they were. And would would they tell me the bad side if if I asked if there was a, a, a negative side? And and I found out the best best policy is always to be upfront. Also develop a level of expectation. First of all, you, you've, you, you had to, I had to get clients to understand that the media is not necessarily out to get them unless they deserve it. 
And so you have to, and a story, uh, you're just trying to get your side of the story. The, the press's job is to get both sides of the story out there. So there's going to be part of the story that's going to be against my client. But if we don't talk and give them some perspective, the whole story is going to be against them. So it's just well, fundamental. And tell the truth. Another thing that I think is part of your philosophy, I've observed it now possibly dozens of times, is um, you will, you'll take your you know, client or partner and um, take them out in the community proactively. You, you map out for you know, the client, maybe the elected official, the, the relationships that if they're not important, they're going to be important you know, pro- proactively. And that's sorry, when you turned, we were talking about kind of looking at it from the media's point of view is making me think about that, that practice that you have. Did that come from, that also come from your, well, I think, days? I think, I think we found that, um, uh, when you deal, when you deal with people who know each other, um, it's, it's better. And it's better to develop those relationships when you don't need them. So that when you do, uh, you can. It helps both of you. So I think that's uh, you know one of the things we like to do is when we have new people come to the community, we like to get them around to introduce them to certain people, much like you at the you know at the city chamber. Um, so I've just found that pays in the long run. I know I'm skipping ahead, but um, you know you your Merchants Bank experience. Um, you bought and grew a public relations firm, uh, Cease Gehrig, and uh, you run a successful business for, I'm doing the math, a couple of decades, and then your good friend Mitch Daniels starts, but at the, I guess when Mitch Daniels yeah. started seriously exploring what the idea of running, you would have been in business for about 20 years, yes. then, right? Is well, that 15, 15? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and again, I, you know, I hadn't lived here. Um, very long. I knew that I, I, I had met Mitch a couple times through Steve Goldsmith and Skip Stitt. Right. So I, but he, he wouldn't have remembered me, but I, I, I do remember just, I do remember the respect that he had. I know a lot of people associated him closely with Luger and Reagan. Um, I don't know a lot about his, um, you know, how long, how much he deliberated and how, how, what, what went on behind the scenes to get him to that jumping off point of running. What was, what was that time like? Well, there were uh, the campaign manager eventually, Bill Osterley, who is a real hero of mine. I just, I think he's a wonderful individual. And I both wrote emails to Mitch uh, that he ought to consider running. Mine was more in the line of, look, you're going to be, you're working for the president. You come back, there are going to be a lot of people that want to hear you speak. And you ought to think about going out to some of these chicken dinners and see if this is what you want to do because there are going to be people who think you want to run for governor. And so he wrote back in his usual caustic two sentences, let's start the program, period. I'm not paying you, period. And so we started traveling the state and uh, going out, and he was well-received. The question is, how can a guy that's never run uh, for an office, how is it the guy from Indianapolis thinks they might be able to win? And so, uh, 
And how is it the a guy never, uh, you know, doesn't seem to have the the ability to campaign because we've never seen him campaign. But can he really do the pounding of the pavement, get out and meet the people and one-on-one and, and ask for their vote? Those were things that were uh, that were asked about, you know, what he, what he was going to do. But he... Uh, he became he became very good at uh, meeting people one on one. That was not his forte. That wasn't easy for him to do. But once he did it, he liked it, and they liked him. And uh, so you know, because I wasn't I wasn't thinking about this at the time. I was young and you know new new to Indianapolis. But it's like it's when you were talking. It's like looking back. So on paper, someone with his pedigree shouldn't be able to win. But yeah. but what. And, and see, and I, I was a deputy level appointee, so I, 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 um, if he walked in the room, I mean, he'd be nice and say hi, Michael. But I don't know him that well, right? And um, but what I do know is he's an exceptionally um, intellectually curious person. Right. Like the times I talked to him, you know, he, I mean, he, I know he's just a voracious reader, and, right. he's, and he stays so current, like with his the columns that he writes and things like that. So I'm wondering, do you think he was able to channel? that curiosity and then focus it on individuals. Cause he was really good in that campaign at telling stories of all right. these, all these individuals from different walks of life and how, what he wanted to do would benefit them. But he was, he was in, in, like incredibly detailed in these personal stories. Is that? That's true. I mean, he, he learned to enjoy hearing stories and, but he never, he remembered names and uh, he, I mean, he, he was phenomenal. And the fact that what he did was he, his campaign headquarters was the Winnebago. It wasn't an office down on Washington Street because we had the signed campaign headquarters. So, and he, Bill said he had the luxury of having a candidate that wasn't working. So we had him 24-7 and uh, travel all over the state and, so yes, I. But but he also had the ability to encourage people who wanted to join the, the tribe. The oh, tribe. I mean, and he's not, and he's not a he's not a salesy person at all. But it was yeah. just like I just you know meeting him a couple times. I was like, yeah, I'd love to work for this guy. Not even knowing him, I don't big even big ideas. Yeah, big yeah, ideas. Yeah. Great, another Reagan, like Reagan, great at like crystallizing right. the big idea right. in a way that um, wasn't um, uh, 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 condescending or right. Yeah, right. What what do you think again? Because because you you I I've, I've said to you before and you know I've said this in introducing you people it's like a lot of people claim to be Mitch Daniel's friend Mitch Mitch actually I mean for somebody who's so public from my observation is he keeps a very private inner circle and you know you've you've known him for decades and gone through battles with him what do you what do you think is kind of the because the Mitch Daniels that I've known is a strategist, but he's also a great marketer, but he's also right. the, the blade, you know, he's a great right. budget guy. What, what do you think is kind of the thing at the end of the day that really, that really, you know, made him such a great, has made him a great executive? Well, I think, I think one of the things that took the edge off of him was uh, his, his girls, the four girls that he has. And, and that, uh, uh, when he, before he was married and before, uh, before he had children, uh, I mean, you know, we were in the office all the time, and he just didn't realize, hey, we've got, some of us have got a family life. We've got kids. and But once he had children, that, that started changing him. So 
he he enjoys he enjoys the exchange of ideas with people, no matter what their age. Just because they're twenty four doesn't mean they can't have great ideas. And he really he enjoys and that's why I think he enjoys being up there at President Purdue. Yeah. He loves young yeah. people. When when you look back, you know, um, even you know, in, even sometime from now, that experience here here's what as a young staffer working on Mitch's, I guess, campaign transition and then in the administration. Um I never officially knew what your role was. I just knew that you were there with him, especially when, especially on really tough issues. You were you were alongside him. Um, what 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 memories of his two terms for you you know will stand out? Well, I think um, I I think the fact that he took the state of Indiana from bankrupt state to where we are today and I think his legacy is that you know, we've, had, we've had good people that following, we had Mike Pence we've had Eric, Governor Holcomb but uh, Mitch was not afraid to make the tough call he, uh, you know uh, daylight savings time uh, tough call uh, the leasing of the toll road for $3.75 billion. And in Elwood, a billion is a lot of money. A million is a lot of money. And he wasn't afraid, and he wasn't afraid to try something, and if it didn't work, he'd pull back on it. And so I, you know, he was a person of ideas. I mean, you look what he's done at Purdue. He's still coming up with ideas at the age of 73, new ideas. That will benefit the institution. How many years has it been since he's had pay raise, or not a pay raise, but a ta- uh, an increase in the tuition? I think it's been every year. I think he's had the same tuition as he did when he came there. Mm-hmm. Now, people wonder, uh, is that important? I can tell you that whenever I'm with him and he's out in a public setting, people will come up to him who are parents and who thank him profusely because he has not raised tuition. They said, we can, because of what you've done, we've been able to plan four years for college. So, you know, he's just, he still, he still comes up with brilliant ideas. I, um, it was 20, it was 2013. Cause I, I just left the mayor's office after five years to go work uh, for Mike Wells at the airport. And my wife, Helen and I took, um, took a few days. My mom, <coughs> my mom took care of our two, or sorry, we had one. We had one son at the time. Um, my mom took care of him while we went out of town for a few days. And um, I had the book that Mitch had just released. I want to. I want to. I want to say it's um, like Building the Republic or something like right, that. The book right. that came out. And I read it, and, and and it was it was maybe a year after he had had announced that he wasn't going to run for president. And I read the book, and it made me mad because what I thought the book I thought I had bought was. Mitch Daniels, How I Saved Indiana. There's almost no mention of his yeah. term as governor. It's each chapter, it's the one where there's a synopsis, again, simplifying but not oversimplifying. Here are the tough decisions that we have to make if the country's going to get ahead of entitlement spending. Right. Here's the tough decisions if we're going to move the needle on income inequality. Here's the tough. And I was like, oh, <laughs> this just would have been great. Oh, yeah. yeah. But, um, I mean, and again, I, I don't, I don't want to, 
I don't want to ask you to go into, you know, reveal confidences about that decision, but I, I'm knowing Mitch as I do a little bit, I'm inclined to take it on face value that he thought about it, he talked with his family about it, and it just wasn't wasn't the right opportunity. Is that, I mean Well, I think I think recently uh, some people were asking him about it and he says, Well, he says the reason I can't do it now, he says, because I'm too young. And uh, so that's awesome. Yeah, you know, that's the way that's, that's a Mitch Daniel answer. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, um, I just think he was, he would have been a great president, but, but he would have, he would have, uh, you know, he would have, he would have been the blade. He would have, he would have challenged everybody like he did in the state government. I mean, and um, so yeah, I it was a it was a not an easy easy decision, and um, I think uh, you know the country would have been better off having him working working in his um, OMB when I was like right out of graduate school. There's he he took a great interest in our work because he he yes. really created that department and and you know and I was working for Chris Johnston and Chuck Shaliol and it was a great environment to be in but um we would bring different cost cutting and you know service right. enhancement ideas to him and he would spend a lot of time with us but he would just grill you and continue oh. to ask questions and if he continued to ask questions it was really intimidating, but it showed that he would spark something and he was interested in it. But he would always not in a not in a uh, an abusive way. He would always point holes in your work and say, "Okay, we'll go back and go, go rework that, and then bring it back to me." Almost like a like a really good professor, you know. Well, so. and, and sometimes I would tell people that they wanted to go over and see him, and I said, "You know, the best way to to approach him is do it by memo, and then go see him because." If you sit down and you want to talk to him with 10 things on the list, you'll get through the first two or three, and you'll never get to the other seven. Absolutely. Because he's hearing them for the first time, and he does like to drill down, and he does like to ask questions, and the meeting will go off the rails. So that's why I suggest you send him in the memo, talks about the 10 things, let him read them, let him get the grasp, let him figure out, and and then go in. He'll still ask you the tough questions. But it'll be it'll be based more on the knowledge of the issue as opposed to just hearing them for the first time. Yeah, I mean that's that's what I one thing I learned from him. It's like his 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 energy and that curiosity. Oh, yeah. It seems like it's just always running right. that that on on anything. Well, you look you look what he did with the Bureau of Motor Vehicles. I mean, yeah, nine minutes. Yeah, and I can okay, so I can see almost a working partnership forming between you and him. And I, it's, it's something like this. He's got this incredible intensity and intensity of focus, but then you, with the kind of storytelling ability and and thinking about human nature, that that would I, I could see that amounting to a really good working partnership and kind of a a, a balance of strengths. Is that is that accurate? He's, we you know we've been friends for forty years, and um, um, we we. Um, uh, I don't, I don't bother him. Uh, we'll text, but I don't bother him because I know he's busy. And uh, I know he's getting lots of texts. And so, uh, but we, we enjoy playing golf once in a while. And, uh, but he's, he's, he's a busy guy, and uh, he's still going strong. So Absolutely. I, so, yeah, I, we, we're, but he's got, he's got some, you know, he's got people that, 
that are very close to him that have nothing to do with politics. Right. So this, there's so much, you've been very generous with your time. I do have a couple more things because we're already, we're already at over an hour. I can't believe we're going to have to do a part two sometime. (laughs) But um, one thing that, that I, at least I see, and you've helped me so much personally, that's been, I see as critical to your success is, um, is, uh, um, the, this this idea, and you help a lot of your clients do it, which is reach out, map out the relationships that are going to be critical, going to be most important, and the the you know meet them before you need them, you know that that expression. And you've got um, uh, it. It might surprise people, or maybe not. It wouldn't surprise people that you you've been a loyal Republican since you were young, but half of your best relationships are with people of other political beliefs, you know, Democrats right, and people right. acro- across the spectrum. Um, that's increasingly rare today. Right. Um, can, can you, can you, have I captured that accurately and can you expand well, on you that? Well, you have. I think people from my generation uh, realized that they needed to have friends on the other side. And an advice, advice I give to anybody that's interested in politics, I said, you need to reach over to the other side and develop a very close relationship with a few people because we are not always going to be in power. And, and when we're not in power, we need to be able to be friends with those people that are in power. And so uh, I've always said that and, uh, because I think, again, that's the way you get things done. You have to compromise and you have to bring people together of different uh, groups. I mean, one of the things that you uh, have not brought up is is my love of Indiana State Fair and the Pioneer Village. But I think you were a part of the discussion in which we were going to have an issue, a tax issue, and it was going to be a very volatile issue, and we brought people to the table. I think you were there. Mayor Fadness was there. Pat Kiley was there. Uh, some people from the governor's office were there. Uh, we had the farmers were there. People who at the time that when the issue was hot and heavy were going to be at each other. And I've always found that if you bring people together around a table, share a meal, and that, that you become friends, it still doesn't mean you won't fight as hard yeah. for your – but you'll at least know the opposition – is more than just a face. This is, um, this is a real. I'm going to say superpower that you have that I you know because that, that's a that's a really good point. Like so, um, for those of you listening, Lou's got a long relationship with um, the State Fair and Pioneer Village, and you can literally you can go to the State Fair um, for most of the days there and uh, find Lou in wearing the uh, the farmer overalls. That's right, <laughs> from Pioneer Straw Village, hat. but. but um, you know, I've I've been honored to be invited to some of these Pioneer Village dinners, which is lunch. If you're noon, Muslim, noon, yeah. yeah. But um, yeah, you know, the one one of them that you're referencing, I had never met the new mayor of Fishers before, Scott Fadness. I thought, oh, I should meet this guy, but I'd never had occasion to meet him. I didn't know the leaders of Farm Bureau. I didn't, and you just kind of um, somewhat spontaneously put this group together. And there have been several occasions where. 
somebody I met through one of these roundtables or the dinners that you put together became this incredibly important relationship for me. Like Mayor Scott Fadness has become a, a great, in addition to a great friend, a great, you know, regional champion supporter of our work. And so I don't know you, you know, you, um, I, it's sorry. It seemed, I know there's strategy behind it. It seems spontaneous the way you do it. Um, I don't know. It's uh, strategic and it's spontaneous. It's almost so, like, almost like musician, like getting different, combinations of musicians together well and we didn't really know where that meeting was going to go we just basically said folks here's an issue we're here to talk about a tax issue and and you're all going to be at the table making a decision and uh so you might as well get to know each other before the battle and uh because it's it's when you're dealing with friends it's takes a little takes the edge off absolutely do do you um because you you engage with all kinds of industries today advise all kinds of industries. Do you, with with social media and people being very a lot a lot of people having a lot no of filter, experts, a lot experts of experts with twenty five followers. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you? Uh, do, I guess my I guess my question is: Do you worry that you know we would lose that? lose that ability to have dialogue, you know, is there is again, not what, I don't want to know trade secrets, but is there, is there advice you find yourself giving, you know, younger people and or well, clients about, I tell people if they want to have their communication read, write a handwritten note, nobody does it and nobody gets them. But if you want to get somebody's attention, because if you do it by email or f- Facebook, it's, you've got to catch them in three se- three words not three sentences, but three words. And, and, uh, but a handwritten note is because nobody gets them and everybody, and they're easy to do. Which reminds me, um, someone you became friends with, uh, who we lost and just recently, George HW Bush. Right. Um, I guess is well known. Some, I read, I read a, 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 um, in a newspaper that, um, he, in his just four years, he had written something like 10,000 handwritten notes. I wouldn't be a bit surprised. He wrote them. And another person that did was Senator Luger. Wow. He wrote lots of handwritten notes. I mean, I know that when my, and he made phone calls. And I know when uh, my father passed, um, you know, I was one of several hundred staffers that had worked for Senator Luger over the years. But I got a personal phone call from him. And, uh, I, you, you know, you just... Those of us that know how busy these people are and know their intentions are good, you know, a letter would have been out. I, I mean, I didn't, ex- I didn't expect anything. Yeah. But for him to call me, it just tells you the measure of the person. And so he was very good at handwriting letters. So was, so was Dr. Cease. And so was Senator Luger. And uh, so it's, uh, yeah, it's a lost art. So la- my, my last question is, um, you know, you, you're, so you're someone who's, seen a lot you've, you've you've been you know both in uh leadership positions in you know indiana and dc um as you think about you know the future for your grandchildren i know you've got you know one son um here in indianapolis daughter in southern california and as you as you think about um the the future and what are the most important things that you know indianapolis and the state should be should be focusing on What's what's top of mind for you right now, both as someone in positions of leadership and someone who's helping well, your clients adjust to the to change? I think I think workforce development is the biggest issue. 
I think that um, for Indiana to move ahead, we have to be aggressive on our workforce development. And I think we have too many silos. And my suggestion is it needs to come out of the governor's office. When Mitch Daniels was governor and he had major moves, there was a lot of discussion on where the major moves person was going to be. Was it going to be an in-dot? And there were those that lobbied him that it was critical, critical that be in his office. Because when a phone call comes from the governor's office, it's going to be returned. And thus, that's how Earl Goode came over from the Department of Administration to head up major moves and then became chief of staff. So I, I think, I think uh, workforce development has got to be on everybody's mind. Now, I know we have low unemployment, but we have people out there that are at, the, at one level and we can move them to the next yeah. level or two levels above. I don't, as, as you know, someone who um, is, is uh, fortunate to lead the, the Indianapolis Chamber and Economic Development Corp, I don't pay a lot of attention to the unemployment numbers, just given the number of people who have dropped yeah. out of the workforce. And it seems like, it seems like, um, and, and I, 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 a lot of us are really encouraged by what the governor, what our current governor has done so far. It's almost right. like, it's almost like um, uh, elevating the prestige of the trades and the, um, you right. know, one and two year technical degrees. And I think they're on, they're on their way, but it almost, it almost seems like um, we've been so aggressive in promoting college, which is great for a, a, a high percentage of kids, but that there's an equal percentage of kids. We almost need to um, uh, elevate the, the stature of the, the technical right. degrees, you know? I think you're right. I think not. I think people are starting to realize that not everybody needs a four-year college degree, and that uh, we need to train those people that, that opt to not have a four-year college degree. And so, I, I I mean, everywhere, everywhere I travel, whether it's Shelby County, Delaware County, Madison County, Orange County, Vandenberg County. The number one issue they talk about is not having people yeah. employed. And I mean, and, and then there's one town I will not mention that the mayor is concerned. He does not want any new companies to come in because when they do, they're going to cherry pick from the other companies that are already there. So the, those other companies don't want to see new, new comp, new business come in. Yeah. And the mayor says he struggles with that. Yeah. But it's, it's a real, it's a real problem. Okay, I lied. I have one more question. I've never asked you this before. Um, Indiana, in the last uh, 40 years, maybe 50 years, has been lucky in some ways, has had a disproportionate impact on Washington. You know, there's a, it, right. Indiana punches above its weight. And I'm, I'm th- you know, I'm thinking, you know, uh, well, yeah, Mike, Pez- Mike Pence was vice president, but Ron Klain right. you know, from Carmel. Um, oh, Biden, uh, Biden, President Biden's, uh, you know, chief of chief staff, of staff. Um, you know, Joe Andrew ran the National Democrat Party, right. you know, Mitch Daniels. And um, there are a number of women in leadership positions from Indiana in the last 40 years. What do you what, what, have you ever thought about this? What do you think? It, do you, what do you think it is about about Indiana that? Well, there's somebody you're leaving out that's not not in an appointed position, but has a great deal of power with the president administration. That's Lacey Johnson. Absolutely. Lacey, Lacey uh, played a great role in getting Congressman James Clyburn to support President Joe Biden in the South Carolina primary. That's right. 
before before the South Carolina primary. It's close with Benny Thompson. Very close. Yeah. And and Cedric Richmond. Yeah. Cedric Richmond, who is on uh, he who works who's one of the top officials in the White House. And uh, was one of the first major fundraisers in on the Obama campaign when Obama yeah. was a was a senator. Yeah. So um yeah, I just think that um, I don't know if it's something in the water. Uh, I know my little town of Elwood. We had we had five or six, seven people, starting with Wendell Wilkie, who ran for president in 1940. That's where he was born and raised. But I, I, you've just always found that uh, people from Indiana uh, have been part of the fabric of major decision makers. I mean, L. Keith Bulin. Uh, Max Friedersdorf from uh, from uh, my days uh, in Washington. So uh, I wonder if it's because we still we still are in Indiana, literal the literal population center yeah. of the United States when they map out the population. And then I wonder if I wonder if some of it is just the intersection of agriculture, technology, you know, life may, sciences. I don't know that all of the above. Plus, I think it's the service mentality yeah. that we that we realize. Again, Senator Luger said, uh, "Come here, do what you need to do, but then go home. Yeah. Make a difference." And uh, I think, uh, you know, again, you look at the people that have been uh, uh, a part of the fabric uh, nationally, and uh, you know, uh, I mean, President Truman's closest friend was uh, was the banker here in uh, Indianapolis. He's when he was going back to Missouri, he always stopped at. Frank McKinney's junior, Frank McKinney Sr.'s house, and stayed with him. So it goes all the way back. I mean, you've got Gordon Durnell. Uh, I'm not Gordon Durnell. You've got uh, Gordon St. Angelo, who was a big time player who started, you know, started the Friedman Foundation. Now Ed Choice. So you you just look through the list, and there are all kinds of people that played uh, a major role in Republican and Democrat politics. Yeah. Well, um, Lou, th- thanks so much for hey, your time. Welcome. I've lo- I've learned a lot. It fills in a lot of the gaps in your uh, fascinating life, and I'm I'm just I'm I'm um, I don't say this enough. I'm grateful to you personally for being such a great uh, mentor and support for me over 20 years, and for a whole I mean a whole generation of people my age and younger. Um, yeah, and and, and, uh, and I'm always I'm always you 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 know you're always someone who's looking forward and um i'm i'm always excited to see like what your next project is going to be so well i i appreciate what you've done mike michael it's it's been <clears throat> it's always fun to be around young people who like you who think outside the box i mean you look at what you and and mayor ballard did uh the parking meter situation you know you yeah. you were thinking about how do we raise money for this community uh with uh, uh, a system that we get one third of the parking meters work and nobody ever gets charged. And now we have a revenue stream for the city because it's not easy to raise taxes. Yeah. So uh, it's, it's the one and one, and you talked about this um, in, in sometimes in public service, you get oppor- you can get kind of entrepreneurial opportunities to be creative. Right. And, you know, the parking meters, which you have worked on, you know, for years, modernizing the parking meters gets a lot of the press, but I could name off a number of things that Ballard allowed me to do that didn't get that kind of press, like the um, redevelopment of the velodrome, which was a partnership right. with Marion university and all kinds of things like that. So it's right. a, and you know, you, you've had a, you've had a front row seat to a lot of those public service opportunities where you can, you get to, kind of 
bring some creativity to the table. And I, and I think in in the in Indianapolis, you had uh, you had businesses, you had government, and you had the unions, and they all worked well together. And uh, uh, I mean, you look at what's happened. But I, again, I think uh, we've been blessed to have people who, you know, when you come to Indianapolis, if you move if you move into any, from another community, you can get to the table rather quickly, very fast. Yeah, it doesn't have to be who you who your parents were, what high school you went to, what college you went to, if, uh, and you can get to the table rather quickly to be a decision maker. That's you know, you're from Elwood. I'm from a small town in Southern Illinois. My yeah. wife's Californian. Moved family yeah. moved from Iran. It's all it's and it's it's true. So okay. this is probably a great way to end the conversation. And I look forward to talking further. Thank you much. Thank you. Thank you.